Uh, friends, here's a headline for you. It's from June of this year, and it's from the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery and Medicine. The headline reads like this. More than a third of Australians considering cosmetic surgery. Uh, now, that's interesting. Uh, I was very surprised by that, but apparently I shouldn't have been, because actually Australians, we are world leaders when it comes to undergoing procedures to change how we look. Um, about Australia, it says that more than $1 billion is spent every year on more than 500,000 procedures, making it more popular per capita than the United States. Um, so I didn't know that. I was surprised by that. I didn't know we were spending so much on that. But why are we doing it? Well, the report says that almost half do it to feel better about themselves. The article then adds that this points to a desire by Australians of all ages to take control of their looks and image in the digital age. Uh, now, that explanation, that rationale, well, actually, that, that doesn't surprise me. Because the, the huge number of Australians who are having work done, well, that sort of corresponds with other types of body modifications that we're seeing. So we think of tattoos. Once the domain of bikey gang members, they're now mainstream, aren't they? Uh, so too, piercings, they are much more common. Now, doubtless, there'll be many reasons for why this is happening. But for many, we're doing it because of this, this sense of freedom that it brings. Freedom to be able to reclaim the body. Freedom to control the body, to make the body better express who we are on the inside. Which is to say that in many cases, again, not all, of course, but in many cases, this desire to shape the body is another expression of expressive individualism. Now, look, for those who missed it, we looked at expressive individualism in some detail last week, but just briefly... What it is, it's a worldview, and it's the worldview that is now dominant in the Western world, and that's been the case for some time now. And what it is, it's about identity, and what it says is that it's up to the individual to define who they are. So nobody else should do that for us, you define who you are, and how you do that is by looking inside yourself. You peer within to work out who you really are. And then the challenge for the expressive individualist is to then live an authentic life. And you do that by expressing this inner identity throughout every part of your existence. In other words, you might simply say that expressive individualism, it's about following your own heart. It's about marching to the beat of your own drum. And so it might mean changing your body to better reflect who you are on the inside. Uh, well, today is our second week in a two-week mini-series looking at the doctrine of creation. And once again, the doctrine of creation, specifically the doctrine of the body, which is what we'll focus on this week, I, I think it is the antidote that we need to help us think rightly about our bodies. And I'm going to suggest that this is really 
really good news because when it comes to the body, expressive individualism does not work. Now, why do I say that? Well, in terms of outcomes, it ends up producing people who are never actually happy with their body. Take the recent Ozempic craze. Uh, I wonder if you've heard about this drug. Um, Elon Musk, he's one of the few who's actually admitted to using it. And what it is, it's an injectable medicine. Um, It was developed for adults with type 2 diabetes. But it's become famous as a weight loss drug, and apparently half of Hollywood is now using it. At least that's what Jimmy Kimmel's comedy routine at this year's Oscars seemed to imply. As host, he declared to a room full of A-listers, he said, when I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? So what he's suggesting is that while very few will admit to using it, he's suggesting the reality is that almost everyone is. And that's an intriguing problem, isn't it? Because on the whole, the Hollywood crowd, the A-listers, they would not be a group that you would broadly classify as being overweight. And actually, perhaps many of us might look and actually long to look like them. And so why would they, of all people, want to be using a drug that actually has some really horrible side effects? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. They're they're still not happy with how they look. Which I think is inevitable because expressive individualism actually denies reality. Uh, Whether we like it or not, we are inescapably embodied. And so as humans, we are not a blank canvas. We can't just do or become anything that we might choose. Uh, I can't, for example, become someone who never sleeps. That doesn't work. My, My body won't allow me to do that. And it's in that sense that expressive individualism is just not livable. Our bodies are more fixed than they are flexible. Now, the Bible doesn't just acknowledge this, it rejoices in it. Because actually, that's the way that God made us. And so, rather than seeking to change the body that God has gifted us, we're to learn to live in that body in a way that matches God's original intention for us. And when we do that, by and large, it works. It is totally livable, which makes sense because if you want to know how to get the most or the best out of something, then you talk to the one who made it. And so we're going to do that. We're going to jump into God's instruction manual for our bodies and we're going to hear how God intends us to use our bodies. And the most fundamental point is simply this. We were made with a body. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now, what we're seeing there is that Adam was made with a body, which is to say that his body is part of who he is. We might even say that he is his body, which is very different to how many today think about their own body. Now, some seem to think that their bodies are, are like a lump of clay. They're able to be transformed into, into just about anything that you want, assuming that you've got the time and the money 
to make it happen. And actually, it can be tempting to think that that's true, can't it? But occasionally, we get a reality check. Um, take the original supermodels, so Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell. Uh, maybe you remember them, maybe you don't. In August this year, they were featured on the front cover of British Vogue. And um, lots of people were talking about this. Uh, a lot of people loved it, but many didn't. And the New York Times outlined a critique of the photo shoot using these words. It said, yet beneath the chorus of love is another a growing strain of commentary that is slightly less enthralled. One focused on calling out what many viewers see as egregious age erasing. The promotion of women aged 58, 57, 54 and 53 as paragons of mature beauty whose years have seemingly been smoothed from their faces, who look so retouched that they seem more like AI-generated bots than actual people. So there were some who didn't like it because it was just so obviously fake. But that's what we're shown day after day. Images of artificially manipulated bodies, bodies that just aren't real. But we forget that. We forget that they're not real, that you, you can't just become whatever you want, that you can't, for example, stop the effects of ageing. You, you can't stay 22. Our body's not infinitely flexible. But rather, the Bible teaches that we are our bodies. Uh, see, God, He didn't first create Adam as a, a bodiless soul before then looking around for something to put him into. That's not what happened. God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we are our bodies and our bodies are us. Now, at this point, you might have a query about that because in the Western world, we, we, too, we do, spend a, speak of a, do tend to speak of a division between the body and the soul. Um, today, it's kind of like the, the base assumption that we have. And as Christians, we can sometimes think that the Bible affirms this. And so, in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, when the Bible speaks of the salvation of your souls... We might think that the soul there refers to the inner person rather than our physical body. But actually, that's not right. In the Bible, the soul refers to the whole person, including the body. And the reality that the Bible holds the inner and the outer together has big implications. It's why the Bible is just so concerned with what we do with our bodies. We're not distinct from our bodies, we are our bodies. And, for example, this is the exact issue that the Apostle Paul had to address when writing to the Corinthian church. Because some in that church, they had what we'd call a low view of the body. In the words of one commentary, the Corinthians apparently reasoned that God is only concerned, or concerned only, with those aspects of a person that survive death, that is, their soul or spirit. Now, that low view of the body unsurprisingly led to ungodly behaviour. They reasoned that the body didn't matter and so it didn't matter, for example, who they had sex with. While for others in the Corinthian church, they reasoned that the body didn't matter and so they tried to ignore it. 
And so they abstained from good things like sex within marriage. So you can see just how important this is. A low view of the body can lead to either extreme licentiousness on one hand or asceticism on the other. Well, what does the Apostle Paul say? Well, he says that what we do with our body matters. That's why he writes, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so we were made with a body, is part of us. But more than that, let me suggest we were made with a great body. Let's hear again from Psalm 139. In in the words of King David, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is a beautiful truth. God made each of us the way that we are. Our bodies are handmade. I think we can say that. Our bodies are handmade. And so all of us, we have an amazing body. Now, that's not to say that we're perfect. Uh, The fall has happened, the world has become corrupt, but notice that King David is writing after the fall. And so one question I've got for all of us here this morning is whether you believe this. Because if you do, then then you should be happy with your body. So we mustn't let perfection be the enemy of the good. You know, so um, just because we, we might have a bad back, uh, we might wish that we looked a little different. And some of us have serious life-threatening ailments. But even still, that shouldn't mean that we don't look at our bodies and give thanks for them. God knew exactly what he was doing when he made each and every one of us. But we struggle with this, don't we? We live in a narcissistic age. Our bodies today are critiqued more than they ever have been before. I'm not saying this is totally new, it's not. Um, We might even think back to three decades ago and we think back to Kate Moss. At the time, this new trend in in body shape was this heroin chic trend. Now, I I don't know, Uh, maybe changing trends in body shapes is just happening more frequently these days. Um, Maybe it's just that now one person can sort of champion successive trends. So you've got someone like Kim Kardashian who was known for having a, a slim, thick body shape. But in the last year or so, she's moved into being just slim. Meaning that, that really, she's had to completely transform her body shape to stay current. And what do we make of this? Well, let me suggest that in the cool light of day, this is really just ridiculous. In what world does it make sense for body shapes to come in and out of fashion? Now, some can transform. Um, When it's your job to do that, 
then I guess it's possible with whatever diet, exercise, procedures. But what does that do for the rest of us? Well, the stats tell us what it does. We end up with people hating their bodies. Far better is what the Bible teaches, that each of us has a great body. And so let me encourage you this morning, regardless of how you're feeling about your body, be grateful for the body that you have. And don't wish that God had made you in some way different. Because he knew what he was doing. And so we were made with a body, made with a great body, but we're also more than just a body. Because our bodies are nothing without God breathing life into them. And so don't ever think that you were just a body. And don't ever treat others as if they were just a body. Again, we can struggle with this. Um, Our world, it is superficial. To put it simply, we love the lovely. Um, That's certainly what the research says. The University of Alberta, they found that those of us who are better looking, for example, are actually more loved by others. Uh, So even parents, if you can believe this, actually take better care of their more attractive kids. It's kind of humorous when you hear that, but this is what they found in their research. They let their less attractive kids do more dangerous stuff, like standing up in shopping trolleys, while they took better care and and kept a closer eye on their more attractive kids. Isn't that ridiculous? Yet apparently that's what we do. We love the lovely. Now, broadly speaking, I don't think we needed a university to tell us that, do we? We see this all the time. We see it in our newspapers, on the TV, on the internet. The people that we see, they are the attractive people, the delightful people, the lovely people. Well, again, what is God's take on this? Well, when God looks at us, He looks beyond the body. Uh, Recall Israel's first king, so the the book of 1 Samuel is where we're at. This wasn't a great episode in Israel's history. The people demanded that God give them a king like the other nations. And God warned them about this. He saw that this request was really a rejection of His divine kingship over His people. And God told them that it would not work out well. Nevertheless, the people still wanted a king. And so what did God do? Well, he gave them a king, just like they asked. He gave them Saul. Now, according to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, Saul was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. And so this guy, he looked amazing. And of course, the people loved him. They were so happy having this great-looking guy as their king. But he was a disaster, just as God said he would be. Now, what do we, what do we learn from this? Well, fast forward to the choosing of the second king, and it's at this point that God teaches a key lesson. Let's pick it up from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and and thought, well, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what we do, don't we? We love the lovely. We're drawn to outward appearance. So those who are better looking get, tend to get more attention, while others are ignored. Well, friends, we've got to learn to look at the heart because we, will be, we were made to be more than just a body. Now, that's not to say that we don't notice outward appearance. We were made as sexual beings. And let me take a, a moderate-sized detour here because this has been a somewhat problematic area for evangelical theology which is to say that at times we've tended to equate attraction with sexual desire. Now, let me explain this a little by, by firstly noting that God made us as those who experience sexual attraction, and it is good. Adam was overjoyed when he first laid eyes on Eve, declaring, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so God created sexual attraction, but attraction on one hand, or perhaps a, a better word for this might be admiration, it's not the same as desire. So the, the fact that we were created to be sexual beings, well, that means that we will find people, and if we're married, people other than our spouse, we will find others attractive. That's how we've been made. But what's critical is what we do with that admiration. And what we mustn't do is let it turn into sexual desire. Now, that's what Jesus condemns in Matthew 5 when he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I know that some will question the Bible's teaching on this specific point. They will wonder, why must sexual desire be exclusively for the marriage relationship? And people will ask that especially so in an age of expressive individualism. People will ask, well, look, if both parties are willing, then, you know, what's the problem? What's the, the problem, for example, with pornography, they'll ask. Because that's one of the claims, isn't it? That pornography, it's just a bit of fun. It's not hurting anyone. Well, we, we've kind of got to get a bit serious about this. This, this is a $100 billion industry. And it's not surprising that there's, you know, there's an incentive for people to say that it's good for you, that actually it can spice up a, a tired sex life, that it can enhance our existing relationships. But of course, that is not what the research says. Nothing good comes from pornography. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but if you want to think more about the incredibly harmful effects of pornography on our society, then actually you might find this book helpful. It does a great job to quote the subtitle of Exposing the Harms of the Global Pornography Industry. It, what it does, it pulls together some of the latest research on this. It covers a lot of ground. As you might imagine, it's, it's a disturbing read, actually, in some parts. But pornography is not good. Now, don't believe the lies, which is to say that, that actually don't think that you are wiser than God. And I really hope that's been a, a key message over the last two weeks. God made us, and He knew what He was doing. 
If you want to know how to get the most out of your body, listen to the one who made you. And we were made to be more than just a body. And it's a horrible mistake to act like we're not. Likewise, when it comes to gender, uh, God knew what he was doing when he made us to be either male or female. Uh, Listen again from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, this has become a hot-button issue in our world today. Um, But before we raise the complexity, let's be clear on this. God made us to be gendered. And as we move into Genesis chapter 2, the language of, notice that the language of male and female then gives way to this language of man and woman as the relationship between husband and wife is then discussed. Now, what this movement does for us, I think, it flags for us how this is supposed to work. A biological male will become a man and will reflect that in his life, while a biological female will become a woman and will reflect that in her life, which is to say that our gender is not found by introspection, but is found in our body. Now, that's not to say that no one will struggle with this. Uh, There will be those, and there are those who experience gender dysphoria. And as a Christian community, we've got to love and care for them. But the fact that some don't experience an alignment between their biological sex and their gender is actually not a reason to dismiss God's intention in creation. And actually, Jesus himself was aware of the complexity here. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus himself refers to those who had been eunuchs from birth. So ponder that for a moment, eunuchs from birth. So these are boys who were born without everything you'd expect a male to have. So Jesus was aware of complexity. He was aware that some don't fit neatly within these categories. And yet he still affirmed the binary categories of male and female. And so again, this is another point at which we, we mustn't let perfection be the enemy of the good. All of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. All of us have amazing bodies, but none of us are perfect. Okay, well, while the focus today has been on what the doctrine of creation can teach us about our bodies, meaning that, you know, I haven't touched on many other aspects of the Bible's teaching that should inform us when we're thinking about what we should do with our bodies. I think it would actually be wrong of me to to not reflect for at least a moment on the new creation that is to come. Because as good as our bodies are, and they are good, we'll have an even better body in the new creation. Now, we're not told too much about them, but what we are told in places like Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, is that it will be a body that is worth waiting for. Because when the Lord Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so maybe this morning, while you know that your body is great, 
You know, it's a tremendous gift that God has given you. At the same time, you know it, it could be better. Maybe you're in constant pain. Maybe you don't actually have that long to live. Uh, a friend once told me that there were just so many things wrong with her body that in car terms, she'd picked up a lemon. Well, things change. This world is corrupt and, and actually all of us are caught up in that, but that's not the end of the story. Christ will return and with him will come a new body for a new creation. But what about life now? Uh, what about the details of what we do with our bodies? Well, actually, there's really only so much that the doctrine of creation can tell us about the specifics. But that's not where we finish. Because what I hope has become clear during these two weeks is that there, there is an order to creation. The Bible teaches that. And even though this world is broken, God still wants us to live in light of that created order. And so while God doesn't always tell us precisely what we're to do with our bodies, you know, He doesn't tell us how many hours a day we should work. He doesn't tell us how many hours a day we should sleep. We don't get those details, but in a sense, we can work it out. Because what we do know is that there is an order to creation, and part of the Christian life is growing in what we call biblical wisdom. Now, we'll look at this in our Proverbs series that's starting up, but biblical wisdom teaches us how to live well. So how to live well in the, in the world that God has made us. And how we grow in wisdom is hearing what God would have us do and then and studying the world around us, studying ourselves so that we can effectively put this into practice. And so um, maybe an analogy works like this. We think of a passage like Hebrews 10 verse 24 that says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So it's telling us what to do, where to spur one another on, but it's not telling us how to do that. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because how we might spur one particular person on might be very different to the way that we encourage another. And it takes wisdom to know how best to do that for one specific person. Likewise, when it comes to our own bodies, we listen to what God would have us do, and then we need to consider how best to do that. Well, what's some examples of this? Well, for some people, one of the key reasons ungodliness can simply be a lack of sleep and so how we treat our bodies relies on us getting to know our own body and living in light of that or the same might go for exercise again trivial examples but worth thinking through we know that God has made us to work and so we know that God has made us to be active from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 we know that physical exercise is of some value but how much exercise do we need well, science can help us out here, it can give us some guidelines, generally speaking, but ultimately it's going to come down to you and what you need to live effectively as a follower of Jesus. So if you don't exercise during the week, let's say, do you get easily ignored? Do you lose energy? Uh, there are no easy answers here, no one answer fits all. 
Because growing in wisdom, in biblical wisdom, that is a lifelong endeavour that we will never exhaust. But that's part of the Christian life. Our bodies are an amazing gift, but like all the good gifts that God gives us, we need to learn to become good stewards of that gift. And so let's pray that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, you made us with a body and each of us has an amazing body. May we always be thankful for it. And may we never make the mistake of thinking that we are just a body. But rather, Father, teach us to view our bodies as you would have us view them. And may we never think that we are wiser than you, but instead enable us to grow in wisdom and so that we'll be great stewards of the bodies that you have given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.